We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. Good morning. And I am uh, sitting here contemplating whether I have two dogs, um, Todd and Copper, as, as uh, all of you all of you know, and a lot of you follow on their Instagram, or whether I actually have cats, uh, because they love to climb. And I sent my producers um, a picture this morning, and apparently um, when they're climbing on, on the bathtub, the... Um, the seminal way to find out uh, the distinction of whether they are actually cats or dogs is whether they like the water when you turn the bathtub water on. So I do have dogs, and they're not identifying yet as cats, which is which is a good thing. Um, but it's hilarious watching them, and they finally got all of their uh, all of their shots and their puppy shots against rabies, all of that yesterday. So they're finally free to go to go outside and uh, continue to grow, and, and they've just been the best. And um, some of you, I, I love the comments that um, you actually appreciate sometimes hearing them in the background and their little doggy commentary. And um, they are being raised conservative, so uh, they definitely are America first uh, little dogs. So moving forward to the top headline this morning is that Biden sets AI technology back in a deal with China. President Biden is set to strike a deal with China that would limit the use of artificial intelligence in nuclear weapons. Uh, Biden and Xi will agree to limit AI use in the systems that control and deploy nuclear weapons, as well as the technology's use in autonomous weapons systems, such as drones. And so uh, Biden met with the uh, Chinese president yesterday in San Francisco, which a lot of conservatives were very upset, not um, not just at uh, the timing of this and also obviously the policy issues that have now come out of this uh, deal with China. Uh, but the fact that this is going on in the midst of a cleanup of San Francisco, that apparently uh, the Democrats are completely fine with cleaning up San Francisco for the Chinese president but not for America and their own residents. And so it shows that government can be competent at some things when it wants to, but uh, really just doesn't care about um, law enforcement and uh, cleaning up homelessness or crime in San Francisco unless you know China comes in and then we're fine. And if you looked at some of the videos on social media, it was actually really troubling. And there were a number of conservatives that were posting about it because all of the um, the Chinese flags that were being waved, I mean, this looked like a scene that was not out of America. So um, to break this down a little further and talk more about um, her new book, which is called Mao's America, and uh, this is a, a survivor's warning, is 
um, our friend Shi Van Fleet, who is Chinese by birth, American by choice, and she calls herself a survivor of Mao's cultural revolution. So good morning, Shi. And uh, what do you make, first of all, of the meeting yesterday between uh, Biden and the Chinese president and and what America is, is doing, in my view, really, the Democrat Party capitulating uh, to China and, uh, and, and everything that the CCP stands for? Well, this is not the first time that we, uh, we uh, tried this, and you think you're going to strike a deal with communism, with communists? You will always, always be cheated. And that happened uh, again and again and again, and I don't think that this will be any different. Mm, that's that's a really great point. And to say that uh, when you make a deal with communists and you think that, I mean, it's, it's like saying democratic socialism. Socialism never works in any context. And just because it's voted in by the public doesn't mean that the theory itself isn't fundamentally flawed. And so she wrote a book um, that's titled Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning. Um, and this just came out in October. And you posted on social media, never did I imagine a day I would write a book. What compelled me to take on this task is my burning desire to warn the American people that history is being repeated. And so what has been your experience and uh, what do you want to let the American people know through this, um, as you call it, a dire warning to the United States? Yes, I, I was born into the slavery of communism. And when I, was, uh, uh, when I was in my first grade, that's when the Cultural Revolution started. And that lasted 10 years, and it's pretty much my whole um, schooling uh, in, under Mao. And I learned very little, and I was indoctrinated a lot. During the Cultural Revolution, the whole country was in chaos. And the, uh, um, the Red Guards, uh, who are the uh, uh, indoctrinated kids, like today's uh, social justice warriors in America. And they did what Mao wanted them to do, to take down the powers from all levels of the government, because Mao... Uh, feel like he did not have total control of his own government. And in the process, they uh, destroyed the Chinese uh, civilization. And that's the mouth version of the cancel culture. It's called um, destroy the four O's, old ideas, old culture, old custom, and old habits. Why they want to do that? Because they want to get rid of the past, get rid of our heritage, so we don't know the past, and we only know one thing, that is Maoism. That's what Mao wanted to do, to replace the Chinese civilization with his radical version of Marxism, which is Maoism. And in the process, they destroyed everything, and they destroyed the statues, they changed the institutional names, and they also used identity politics to polarize the whole population. One group belonged to the black class, which is the enemy of the state, and the others are the red class, the uh, allies of um, uh, the party. And that's exactly what's going on here in America. And also they weaponized the youth. This is history repeating. And uh, once I saw what's going on, especially in 2020, the full-blown Marxist cultural uh, revolution, and I told myself I 
cannot no longer um, remain silent. I have to speak up. I have to warn Americans. They know nothing about the history of communism. They know nothing about the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution. I have to warn them. That's when I uh, started to get involved and went to the school board in Loudoun County, and, um, and my speech went viral. And uh, since then, I got opportunity to speak to so many people. But eventually I said, I have to write this book because I can't tell the whole story in, uh, in, in a speech here and the and and interview there. And so I spent a whole year. I quit my job and I devoted my time to this book. So I'm just so glad it came out. And I hope that people will read it and they were then they will understand what we're go, uh, what we're dealing with. We are dealing with the communist takeover of our country. And Shi Van Fleet, who's the author of Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning, um, I'm so grateful that you did dedicate your time uh, to this education through uh, your book. And where do you see America on on the trajectory of Uh, of the timeline in terms of uh, where are we at compared to what you first saw uh, more than 30 years ago in China? And is it too late for America or with this warning, um, can we rediscover a true freedom rather than replacement with Marxist ideologies? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's uh, we're in dire situation. There's no mistake about it. I can't sugarcoat it, but we have to fight back. And you, in the beginning, you talk about the biblical worldview. What we're fighting now is we have to replace the Marxist worldview that all those indoctrinated uh, youth or the indoctrinated uh, Americans and replace the with biblical uh, worldview. And that is a task. And that's because we have paid uh, no attention while the radicals have taken over our edu- educational system since the 60s. They first took over the uh, academia, and then they have decades to train future Marxists. And where are those Marxists? They are in control of all our institutions. And that's where we are today. And they are doing the same thing to train our young kids, now as young as kindergarten, to have this Marxist uh, worldview, to see everything through the lens of oppressors versus oppressed. And that is absolutely the problem. If we do anything to win the war, it has to be in the field of education. We have to take back our uh, public schools and our universities. And we start with taking back our school board. And, and I could not agree more. And there's an opinion piece in the Washington Examiner that's titled Pro-Hamas Sentiment Among the Youth is the Direct Result of Marxist Indoctrination. And I think that this is just yet another example of how Marxism is not only infiltrating our institutions, but primarily um, higher education and state-funded universities and moving with this type of worldview that is completely antithetical to truth. It is not the biblical worldview. And when we look at politics being downstream from culture, it's because the culture is being indoctrinated in our youth in 
a public education. And so to take back our institutions and to re-educate in terms of freedom, the Judeo-Christian worldview, what it actually means um, to have a society that is built on a moral foundation, that has to start with kids when they're young. And then as they move forward yeah. and vote for these policies, then they actually understand the the broader perspective. And so as you have been talking to people across the country and on um, on social media and on media with your book, have you seen a response that, that people become aware of this issue and actually want to get engaged and involved? Um, do, do, uh, does America recognize this as th- the problem that it is? I, I'm so encouraged when I go out uh, to the country and I talk to so many uh, people and groups. And uh, who are those people that get involved? They are just like me. And I was not politically involved at all three years ago. And I never had uh, a public um, speech. I was shy, and, uh, and I just uh, feel like uh, politics is not something um, I, I could you know, understand or do or whatever. And then I got involved because I saw the danger that uh, um, posted uh, to our country uh, by those radical ideas, Marxist ideas. And I see the same people. I see parents, and I talk to them. They said three years ago they were not involved, never went to school board, and the grandparents said they never went to school board, but now they're involved. So there's a hope. If there's any hope, I think it's because parents are waking up because they see that they are fighting now for their own kids. And I do think that is the hope. And it's a great hope. It is a great hope, and that's exactly what the Bible commands us to do: is is for parents to train up their children in the way that they should go, and and take responsibility for the education of their children, not pass that along to the government so that they can be indoctrinated. And it's it's really a dangerous thing, she, when you look at uh, President Biden and the Democrats suggesting that children belong to the state instead of the parents. We don't co-parent with the government, and if that's the biggest wake-up call it's that parents need to be responsible for the uh, for training and, and truly mentoring and discipling their children and I've been very encouraged as a homeschool graduate um, myself that so many more parents are taking that responsibility and choosing homeschooling or that type of education so that they can invest in their children so I so appreciate your um, your analysis and your dedication to this cause and we will be praying for you um she van fleet and her uh, book is titled mao's america or a survivor's warning and you can get that on amazon or wherever books are sold so again mao's america a survivor's warning by she van fleet and we will be right back with more here on jenna ellis in the morning
want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say freedom? CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And the Senate late last night on Wednesday overwhelmingly approved a two-step stopgap funding measure, this continuing resolution, preventing a government shutdown that would have gone into effect this weekend. The vote was 87 to 11 in the Senate in favor of the continuing resolution, or CR. Uh, 60 votes were needed for passage. So joining me now to discuss more is Brandon Arnold, the executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union. So, Brandon, um, how should we as conservatives understand what this continuing resolution contains? Is this a good thing overall uh, that Speaker Johnson was able to get through the House and now uh, has passed in the Senate? Well, it's a necessary thing to pass this bill, and nobody really likes doing continuing resolutions. Nobody likes these spending patches. But the fact of the matter is they're better than a government shutdown. Every time we've had a government shutdown in the past, conservatives have lost out. And that's because the media, of course, is stacked against us. They are ready and waiting with all sorts of news stories about how this government shutdown is impacting everybody from veterans to children to small businesses, you name it. They put pressure on conservatives, and eventually we break. So we, we shouldn't go down this shutdown strategy. What this continuing resolution does is buy us more time to actually get our appropriations bills done. And that's what I think Speaker Johnson has prioritized. And we need to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I know there's a lot of skepticism already. A lot of people are frustrated about this continuing resolution. But I think he was elected speaker for a reason, and we needed to give him a chance to lead to pass these appropriations bills and start to tackle this enormous debt problem the country has. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, and you're right that a lot of conservatives are frustrated with kind of these stopgap bills. And um, and a lot of the the pushback, I think, from conservatives is, well, okay, you know, we don't really care what the mainstream media says. Is it really so bad to have a government shutdown because these are uh, what are deemed as non-essential uh, personnel and workers and the government itself and national security continues? So why not do that up front and um, you know, not even really worry about a government shutdown. Yeah, you know, a lot of people that say that are from ruby red districts that uh, have their constituents firmly at their back. A government shutdown won't affect their citizens quite as much. They're very, very conservative districts or states. 
But the people that are in purple districts, and we need Republicans in purple districts if we want to have a majority, if we want to have a speaker, instead of turning over the speakership to the Democrats, those people do feel a lot more heat, especially if they're in areas where they have a lot of government workers, where they're close to Washington or uh, other parts of the country. Those people get walloped when we have a government shutdown. And at the end of the day, a government shutdown doesn't yield really strong benefits for us. It ends up costing us money because it's it costs money to restart the economy. We end up paying these government workers who sit on their tails and watch TV during these government shutdowns. We end up paying them double, essentially, because not only do we give them back pay, we give them all sorts of disruption pay and so forth. It becomes a huge mess. So I just don't think this shutdown strategy works. It may play well in a few districts and the more conservative districts, but in those purple districts, in those districts that we need to hold on to or win to gain, uh, seats in the House and, and to win the Senate back. Uh, it's, it's a real losing strategy. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, makes a lot of sense. And, and, and a lot of people who want th- the best case scenario aren't necessarily looking at uh, the practical reality of what can and can't be done. And I think a lot of criticism from the the right or even the far right of Speaker Johnson um, really doesn't take into consideration how narrow the majority of Republicans in Congress actually is and also how um, how, how broad the conference is. And for Speaker Johnson to be able to hold the conference together and then actually get to the appropriations bills, um, it seems like he does have a very good grasp on what needs to be done. And it's not that he's compromising or taking concessions in a McCarthy-style lane, but genuinely understanding where to prioritize the fights. Um, so do you see that in terms of his leadership so far? And where do you expect this to go in terms of appropriations? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think he's a very savvy guy. He's a very intelligent guy. I don't, I don't know if you've had him on the program or not, but you, you certainly should. Yes. Uh, you could agree on a lot of issues. He's a very, very intelligent man. And, and li- listen, you know, it's, it's about picking which hill you're going to die on, which hill you're going to fight on. And the hill to fight on is certainly not over the continuing resolution. You're just not going to achieve a lot there because you're only talking about a very small window. We're talking about funding uh, parts of the government into January, some into early February. So you're talking about a pretty narrow piece of the overall government uh, spending pie. The big fights are going to be over these appropriations bills, and that's where we need to have Republican unity because, like you said, the majority is extremely small. And that doesn't mean nobody's going to get everything they want. I think that's really what's the dynamic that's changed with the frustration with with McCarthy and, and his ouster. You know, people got this impression that, hey, we can get everything we want. And that's never the case when you're in a legislative body of 435 members. You have to make some concessions. But let's not make the perfect of the enemy the good. Some of these appropriations bills that they're moving are very good. They make tens of billions of dollars in cuts to existing programs relative to last fiscal year. You know, they reign in the Biden administration, prevent Biden from creating this uh, expanded IRS with the ability to take over the tax filing process. They reign in the Federal Trade Commission, which has been an absolute renegade agency trim what some of the Department of Labor is trying to do to shut down the franchise model that would essentially handicap McDonald's owners all over the country and other franchisers. So there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. These bills are never going to be perfect. They're always going to spend more than a lot of folks would like. There's always going to be some problems with them. But overall, we got to not let the perfect be the enemy that could. Let's make some progress in chipping away at this massive federal debt and these enormous federal deficits. 
And I'm speaking with Brandon Arnold, who's the executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union. And um, the focus on appropriations and making sure to to cut um, deficit spending. And even when you look at uh, where uh, Speaker Johnson and even representatives like Chip Roy have been very vocal in saying if there is a, a funding uh, aid to, and, and a funding package to Israel, then they need to take that out of some other appropriation so that it's not just writing a blank check that we don't have. And all of that, I think, really makes sense um, to a lot of conservatives that want to focus on maybe some more of the um, the, the dynamic or um, or politically controversial things like the impeachment of Biden, for instance, or, you know, the weaponization of government committee. I mean, all of these things that are very important. Uh, why should we be paying attention to appropriations that maybe aren't as interesting to the average um, casual politico, but are very important to the functioning of America and also uh, making sure that we do um, rein in all of the spending? Yeah, well, they're interesting to me, John, uh, but <laughs> I get it. Well, for that's why you're on the program, because you get to tell us why they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, no, I totally get it, though. You know, appropriations, people's eyes glaze over when they hear about government spending, billions of dollars going here, there, wherever. Uh, but, you know, like, like I was saying, the appropriations process isn't just about dollars and cents. Embedded in the appropriations bills are provisions that say the Biden administration cannot pursue this regulatory strategy that it's currently doing. That means you can use this spending process to essentially kneecap, you know, the, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Department of Labor, the Department of Commerce, the FTC, all of these agents, agencies, you can put in provisions that say this agency can no longer implement this regulation. So those franchise rules, this IRS expansion, the FTC and its anti-capitalist endeavors, all of these agencies can be reined in. We can recap these agencies through the spending process. That's why it's really essential. Of course, the top-line spending numbers matter a ton. We have a $1.7 trillion deficit last year with no relief in sight, so that's a top priority as well. But there's so much that we can do for this process beyond just cutting dollars and cents. And so as we move forward um, into this whole process and, you know, Congress can do multiple things at the same time. I mean, I know mainstream media would not like us to believe that. And if, um, you know, somebody like Jim Jordan is focusing on the weaponization of government committee, then, you know, somehow Congress isn't getting literally anything else done, um, according to them, which I think is ridiculous. Um, but in terms of the for the constituents and for Americans who are concerned about this, um, where should we be paying attention in the next weeks and months and actually engaging in the process ourselves? Um, because I, I think for a lot of representatives and, and particularly on the Republican side, they may not hear from constituents as much on things like appropriations as much as more of the political you know, red meat topics. And so where should uh, we be engaging in terms of encouraging our legislators um, to actually vote conservative and and responsible policy. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a lot of stuff going on. As, as you said, it's not just the spending process. That's dominated all the headlines because we've once again flirted with a government shutdown. Thankfully, we'll avoid that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Israel funding package, I think is really important. I think Speaker Johnson deserves a ton of credit there. I can't remember the last time we had an emergency supplemental appropriations bill that we'd actually paid for with with spending cuts, no tax increases, just spending cuts. Uh, 
So he deserves a ton of credit for starting that process in a positive direction rather than just following the old Washington, D.C. strategy of just adding on to the national debt. I think there's momentum, not a ton, but there is some momentum to do a tax package. We have a lot of expiring provisions that were part of the Trump tax cuts of 2017. Some of them have already expired. Some of them are going to expire in 2025. We really need to lay the groundwork there if we want to move away from Bidenomics and back to the tax policies that grew the economy, that kept inflation low, that produced a ton of jobs. And I think that work is being done right now by the Ways and Means Committee in the House, but it's an uphill battle, and every constituent that weighs it, you know, makes it a little bit easier to get that ball across the finish line to have good tax policy instead of the nonsense that we've seen for the past couple of years out of the Biden administration. Yeah, and, and this just underscores, uh, Brandon Arnold, why uh, we need to all be engaged and take responsibility um, for that engagement in our government, not just be sort of passive recipients of uh, whatever Washington generates, um, but also be active and to make our voices heard and, and truly act like constituents um, instead of just uh, complaining on, on the backside or uh, or going along with the mainstream media's narratives about um, Speaker Johnson. And so Brandon Arnold, Executive Vice President at the National Taxpayers Union, really appreciate your commentary this morning. And uh, we are going to have Speaker Johnson on the show. I've been communicating uh, with him and also his team. Um, and obviously, as you know, he, he has a very, very busy schedule now that he is Speaker, but um, definitely wants to prioritize uh, coming back on AFR. So we will get him on the show as soon as we can. And I would just encourage everyone as well, um, please be praying for him and his family in particular. Um, we should always be praying for our leaders in um, in America, our state and local officials, as well as uh, national leaders. Whether we agree with them or not, we need to be praying for them because their decisions obviously impact and, and uh, influence us. And so we should be praying for them and for um, God's mercy when it comes to uh, to people who are not so responsible, but, uh, but also for God's protection for people like uh, Speaker Johnson and his family who has been so maliciously and consistently attacked. And um, you know, just from from my own personal experience with um, the hostile forums that are uh, that are the media and a lot of the social media response over things that um, you know b- people just they want to see what they want to see, and uh, often it's a very siloed response. And for uh, Mike Johnson, the left sees him as a Christian and as um, someone who's committed to his family and the biblical worldview. So they will see and attack him through that lens. Um, whether that is right or wrong, they don't necessarily care. And um, and I can I can say from personal experience, it does get very um, wearing and, and at times exhausting. And so um, to just be so consistently attacked, especially um, when it's a lot of times um, not really legitimate and you have to pick your battles. And um, so just pray for Speaker Johnson and for his um, for God to just to to lift him up and to uh, keep him faithful to the office uh for which God has called him to. And I'm very grateful that he is the speaker. Um, so in just the last few minutes that we have in this segment, um, I wanted to highlight another story that um, we just haven't gotten to in the last uh, week. But you may have heard that a pro-life f- uh, father, 
Mark Hoke sued the Biden DOJ over his arrest and raid for millions. Um, there's a great piece in the Daily Wire uh, just a few days ago about this story. So the pro-life activist and Catholic father of seven and his wife are suing the Biden Department of Justice over the arrest uh, last year by an estimated 20 armed FBI agents at his Pennsylvania home in front of his children. You'll remember that um, this this pastor and a pro-life leader who ne- leads a nonprofit group that provides sidewalk counseling at abortion clinics in Philadelphia um, was arrested over an incident from 2021 involving his then 12-year-old son at a Planned Parenthood uh, abortion facility. And so he was facing 11 years behind bars and fines up to $350,000 for simply defending his son from a harassing pro-abortion activist. He was acquitted of those charges and we're thankful for that, that truly um, a measure of justice was served. Um, But according to the lawsuit, which was filed last Monday, the family is seeking $1.1 million for malicious prosecution, retaliatory prosecution, false arrest, abusive process, and assault, uh, as Daily Wire and also the Daily Signal are reporting. So the suit describes this infamous arrest as, quote, unnecessary and unlawful show of force and an infringement upon the family's Fourth Amendment rights. Um, according to the lawsuit, officers used excessive force to arrest the activist on nonviolent charges when he had not threatened law enforcement, and the civil suit had already uh, been resolved. So um, so this is, I think, a great way that uh, he and his family are fighting back against a weaponized government. So we will be following uh, that lawsuit with great interest and be praying for that. And again, we are never guaranteed a full measure of justice in any context in this life, um, including through the judiciary. But sometimes justice can happen and we will continue to pray for every Christian who is targeted by the weaponization of government. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Leisha had found herself in an unplanned pregnancy and wasn't sure what to do. She searched for pregnancy services and found a preborn network clinic where she was counseled, supported, and offered a free ultrasound. After seeing her baby and hearing the heartbeat, she cried. She was certain she would keep her baby forever. Leisha gave birth to a baby girl who is smart, beautiful, and full of life. Often, she visits that same clinic and receives free clothes, diapers, and more. Because of your generous support, Preborn writes 200 stories just like these every day. $28 can be the difference between the life and death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection and doubles a baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers in crisis choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. 
Well, this is National Collection Week for Operation Christmas Child, and now through November 20th, so just four more days. This is a direct way for you to equip the local church around the world. Operation Christmas Child local ministry partners with a simple shoebox gift to reach their own communities and establish long-term relationships. And so pack your shoebox now with any standard size shoebox and drop it off during the third week of November. You can go to SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC to learn more and find out what uh, toys and school supplies and hygiene supplies they recommend for packing for boys and girls um, to fill that shoebox box with. So for gift suggestions and volunteer opportunities, drop box locations, and more, visit the Samaritan's Purse website, SamaritansPurse.org forward slash OCC. All right. Well, we continue to talk about how politics is downstream from culture and how the biblical worldview um, is the only internally consistent worldview that explains the truth of the reality to which we are presented. And I often say I am not a Christian merely because I believe in God. The Bible says that even the demons believe, right? So so belief in God is not a transformative saving uh, belief, but a and is not a recognition and um, and an ascension to Jesus being our Lord and Savior. Uh, but we also need to recognize that the reason that we are Christians is because we all have to answer life's most important questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? Is there a God? Is there an eternity, life after death? Uh, what is the problem of man? What is the solution to the problems of man? All of these things, um, as C.S. Lewis describes so well in Mere Christianity, which is one of my favorite books, and also Abolition of Man and others. Um, he's just a prolific author and is one that has influenced my worldview uh, quite significantly, uh, particularly in the realm of, of law and the proper application of the philosophy of law to civil society and government, um, actually through Mere Christianity. Um, he often talks about how we are all presented to reality and we have to reconcile what we experience and what we understand with the truth and how the Bible describes the answers uh, and provides answers to those questions is the only internally consistent worldview and best explanation for that reality. And so I'm a Christian, um, not because, you know, we need a crutch of religion or a sky daddy or all of these other ridiculous things that the leftists accuse us of, but because I want to answer those questions truthfully. And I want to know the truth about reality. And I want to be able to answer those questions with sincerity and an understanding of reality. And so um, the worldview is is very important. And our next guest, uh, John Zmirak, has a wonderful piece in stream.org. Um, it's an interview on how the sexual revolution conquered the Catholic Church. And I would extend this even to say that the sexual revolution has uh, conquered or captured a lot of the evangelical movement and Protestant movement in America as well. Um, but John Zmirak, really appreciate you joining. And um, worldview is so important, and when we understand what the truth of the biblical worldview is, how is it possible that the sexual revolution has actually captured our churches? Thank you, Jenna. Yeah, well, here's how. It's under the guise of science, but also it's it's through the weakness of our hearts. 
I'll start with science. The, the culture insists that psychology is a science. Um, and, but the psych- psychological theories and methods it presented were not empirically tested. We're not dev- evolved in a laboratory. Sigmund Freud wasn't practicing objective science in the manner of physics, you know, or geology, or even geography. Psychology, as it was practiced by Freud and Jung and their colleagues, it was sort of a quirky art form that verged on a kind of spiritual direction. And it ultimately became a kind of substitute religion. And in fact, Freud's theories have been largely discredited in practice, and are not even put to use anymore. But in in church circles, both mainline Protestant and Catholic, and increasingly, sadly, evangelical circles, psychology began to take on the authority of objective science, as if it were mathematics or physics. So the more believers who fancied themselves sophisticated and also people who were unhappy, uh, began to turn to psychology as the replacement for theology. First, they said it was just a supplement, but in fact, it began to replace it. And in Freud's worldview, sexuality is a primitive force of nature. It's like the water running through the Mississippi River. You have to acknowledge it's there. You can't hold it back. You can't dam it up. If you try to divert it, you end up creating a destructive buildup of tension that eventually will explode. Freud explicitly talks about sexual desire compared it to like steam power in in an engine, that if you don't allow the pressure from the steam to vent, the engine will explode or at least be distorted and damaged. So Freud claimed that repressing any sexual desire, such as adultery or homosexuality, or increasingly today people say pedophilia, repressing any sexuality will distort the human mind and create neuroses and make you miserable. And fundamentally, he believed sexual repression was at the heart of all human unhappiness. As this false worldview, which is not based on science, but on Sigmund Freud's personal secular worldview that he developed in the late 19th century, uh, as this conquered more and more Christians, uh, they began to think that the prohibitions on sexual sins in the Bible were ancient and primitive and superstitious and ultimately as super superannuated as the prohibitions on eating shellfish or mixing different kinds of fabric. And we began to see this spread through church circles. Add into this the fact that increasingly a lot of straight men did not want to become Catholic priests because they didn't want to face lifelong celibacy. The, the men who were willing to sign up were frequently gay men, who were closeted and were trying to make their mothers happy. So you you combine those things, and you've got a recipe for a clergy being taken over by people who are either leading a double life because they have a gay lifestyle, or they have simply given pride of place to secular 
science instead of the Bible and St. Augustine and the teachings of the Church, which are very clear on sexual morality going back not just to the New Testament, but to the Old Testament. Uh, John Smirak, um, who is a senior editor at The Stream and author and or co-author of 10 books. Um, I think what you underscore is so important that Christians have to make sure that our theology and our view of the doctrines of Christianity cannot be compromised with a secular worldview of the philosophies that end up infiltrating our theology and ultimately our churches and what we profess and teach and then practice as Christians. And you're so right about psychology. And um, and in fact, you know, this is why the, um, the International Association of Biblical Counselors, or IABC, and also ACBC, and um, some of these biblically sufficient counselors would reject a psychology and a and a solution to man's sin problem that has been started in and is rooted in a secular premise that is not teaching the truth of the gospel of Christ and is not teaching about a sin problem, but is starting with Freud's crazy theories about sexual repression and you know all of these other things that are not grounded in biblical truth. And so how should Christians be very careful to rightly divide truth from error and take some things that are, um, you know, obviously still truthful, like plain math, you know, two plus two equals four. That's not a, an inherently um, Christian or secular position, but it is Christian in the sense that it's truthful versus something that is premised specifically in an amoral or non-Christian worldview. Well, we have to remember the truth does not contradict truth. And if we know for certain, based on solid authority and thousands of years of tradition and the internal logic of faith, if we know something from that, if some, some fellow calling himself a scientist claims he disproves it, you should be very, very suspicious. And remember that Masters and Johnson and Alfred Kinsey and Margaret Sanger all pretended that they had science behind them. Roe v. Wade claimed to be based on science, that, that we could show that the unborn child was not human yet in the beginning, that it was impossible to, to pinpoint the moment when life began. So much of what secular progressives have relied upon turned out to be complete pseudoscience. And in fact, one of the reasons I love the Discovery Institute and intelligent design is that it's showing us that Darwinist materialism is based on pseudoscience. That in fact, there is tangible, demonstrable evidence that a designing mind of enormous ingenuity lies behind the material universe. If you insist that all of us happened, the, the whole human race happened as a result of biological mistakes and random mutation, ultimately you're not going to see the divine plan in day-to-day life. So you're not going to believe there are divine limitations, divine restrictions, and mandates on our behavior. You'll just think, well, who I have sex with doesn't really matter any more than it mattered whether chimpanzees evolved into human beings, these things just happen or they don't happen. We live in a universe where just stuff happens, so I might as well do what feels good. Right, and, and this is exactly why, uh, John Zmirak, we have to make sure that we have a consistent 
biblical worldview and foundation that then informs what we understand to be truthful in all subject matters and areas. It's remarkable to me to see Christians who have a worldview that is basically buffet style where they, they, uh, they, they take their worldview yeah. piecemeal and can think one thing in science or in origins theory or in um, the their understanding of um, sexual matters and relationships or you know any number of topics or even um, even government civil government or the family and they can have a and hold a position in that subject matter that is completely antithetical and contrary to the position that they espouse in terms of their faith and their Christianity and this is why starting with a comprehensive biblical worldview, absolutely matters to then build up from there. And so when people ask you the question, and I get this question all the time too, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about, you know, fiscal responsibility. The Bible doesn't say anything about, um, you know, the, about um, abortion or a uh, gay marriage or, or anything like that. And so we can, we can believe in God, but then we need to adjust for the times because, you know, the Bible's so antiquated. We need to figure out our policy for today. What's your response to that? My response to them is that's exactly what the Christians who wanted to adopt adapt to the to the Nazis said. That's what the Christians who wanted to defend slavery said. Um, you could say the same thing. The Christ, the Church, does, the Bible does not forbid racial segregation. Oh, I guess racial segregation is okay. Well, no, no, no. Obviously, you have to look at the Bible and deduce the principles, and they would forbid segregation. Yeah, guess what? That applies to these other things, too. It applies to groomers having drag queen story hour in church. Don't play stupid. When somebody says that, I say, you're, you're not as stupid as you're pretending to be. I'm not fooled. Cut it out. It's not cute. You know perfectly well that the Bible is not a see dick run kind of book for first graders is the, the bible teaches us fundamental truths which we're supposed to tease out to their ultimate meaning and if you're going to draw from the bible that racism and segregation are wrong i'm going to draw from the bible that corrupting children with pornographic books in the schools is wrong and if you don't admit that principle then you're just being dishonest Really, really well said, and I love that. Of you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're not as stupid as you as you pretend to be. It's such a great uh, line because people want to oversimplify the biblical text. And John's Merrick, we only have about two minutes left. But why then would Christians and churches, especially, adopt these worldviews? I mean, are they doing so intentionally, or are they just just overrun by the cultural influence? I think in most cases. They're overrun by the cultural influence, but you do have a certain percentage of clergy who have themselves been corrupted. I personally, as a Catholic, think Pope Francis is an atheist who joined the church a long time ago to destroy it from within. Uh, We were warned in the 1950s by people like Bella Dodd that communists were infiltrating Catholic seminaries, and I think finally one of them got through. Yeah, well, John Zmirek, I always so appreciate your commentary. And I listen to you on the Eric Metaxas show all the time. He's a very dear friend. So tell him I said hi next time you're on and look forward to having you on again. Uh, John Zmirek, who is the senior editor at The Stream. You can find all of his pieces, stream.org. And we will be back tomorrow with more of Jenna Ellis in the morning. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.